Let's pray and we'll get into Mark chapter 11. Lord, we're so thankful. We talk about these folks that are persecuted for their faith. And we're thankful that here in America we can still get together openly, Lord. We don't have those words. We thank you for that. And we thank you for this church and all you're doing through it. And we thank you for all the folks that came out this morning. And we pray as you look in your word, as we look in your word, that you'd open our hearts to hear what you'd have us hear, Lord. Lord, some of us need encouragement and strength. Others need to be convicted, convicted, Lord. We know that your word speaks to our hearts, and we pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you'd have to say to us. Teach us by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a bit of a review, and to put this into a time frame, we are in the last week of Jesus' kind of human life on earth. Uh, we studied in Mark 11, where Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. That, that, uh, we got that earlier in chapter 11. The same day he was leaving town, going to Bethany, he cursed the fig tree. The next day, or the next day after that, it's hard to pinpoint days, but it may have been Monday of the same week, uh, he cleansed the temple. He went in and, and drove out the animals and overthrew the tables and, and made a big ruckus there. And on the way out, the disciples saw that the fig tree was withered up. And we had that awesome message about prayer. And then the next day, and uh, Tuesday perhaps, now we can't be dogmatic because the scriptures don't say it was Monday and Tuesday, but it, it does say the next morning they came into the temple. That's where we're going to start studying today. He is challenged by the leaders and they question him and they challenge him. And so we'll discuss that this week and next week. And then we know that a couple days off or later, Thursday or Friday of the same week, Jesus is going to be crucified. And then, of course, on Sunday is Resurrection Sunday where he raises from the dead. So we are right in the shadow of the cross. Jesus knows this is happening. The, the disciples, of course, you know, even though he's told them three times, they haven't got it, but Jesus knows it. And it's just getting down to those last few days before his crucifixion. Now, there is an amazing parallel between this week and the Passover back in Exodus. If you remember the story of the Passover in Exodus 12, where the children of Israel had been slaves and being slave labor in Egypt for years and years. And they cry out to God. God sends Moses. This is what we're studying about on Wednesday nights. And then all these plagues that God sends to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And of course, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. So God told Moses to tell the people that on that would be that month, which was the Hebrew month Nisan, would be the first month and on the tenth day, they were to take a lamb into their home. This lamb had to be without blemish, without spot. And we see it's looking forward to the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. So on the fourth day, which would be um, the, the um, 14th of Nisan, they were to sacrifice, to kill this lamb. And then they took the blood, they painted it on the doorway. And then when the death angel came to get the firstborn, if he saw the blood, then he passed over that house. He passed over that house. And this is very interesting because this is the feast that the Jews are celebrating 
right now as we study in Mark 11. And the 10th of Nisan is likely the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. Like the Jews were taking the lambs in their home, Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. As the lambs are examined to see if they are spotless, we see Jesus being examined by the Jewish leaders. Now, they're not trying to make sure he's spotless to, uh, you know, so they could sacrifice him. That's not what they're thinking, but it's amazing, this parallel. And then it's likely that actually when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed in the temple, that was the same time Jesus was dying on the cross. So it's just very awesome to see how these things parallel and how the scriptures really fit together. It's, it's, that's why we need to not just read one little section or just read the New Testament and not the Old Testament because we need to get the whole picture. It's like a puzzle. We get a piece here, a piece here, a piece here. So we have Jesus being crucified here in the Gospels during Passover week. We see how the first Passover is in Exodus and how that's symbolic of what's going to happen in the future. Then we have John the Baptist a few years back saying about Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that Jesus Christ is our Passover. Then in Hebrews 10, we have, we have the, the Jewish sacrifices being compared to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So, you see why it's important to read it all because it all fits together. It's one story from Genesis to Revelation. And it's why it's important for us to start be reading through this, studying through this Bible over and over and over again. It gives us a greater depth of knowledge. We can increase in our knowledge of God, and it just increases our faith so much. So I'd encourage you, starting this new year, to be reading through, reading through that book. Okay, so let's take a look now at Mark 11, starting at, at um, verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. Now this is Jesus and his disciples having spent the night in Bethany. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now when we say Jesus was walking in the temple, we don't mean the actual temple building itself, which was a fairly small structure. Only the priests could go in there. The temple had these huge courtyards around it that were covered acres. They'd hold thousands of people. And that's where the people would come. And uh, they would be taught... They would do different things there. This is, so this is where we are. We're in these courtyards around the temple, not in the temple itself. And this being the Passover week, thousands and thousands of Jews are coming from all over the world to worship in Jerusalem. So you've got this big crowd, this big multitude of people there, much more than usual. So who are these guys, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders? Now remember, the day before, he cleared those money changers, and those guys ripping the people off out of that area, right? And as Steve said last week, it angered the chief priests. They were, it was a religious racket. They were making money. They were getting wealthy off of that. So they are not happy with them. The chief priests, they were the ones who did the sacrifices, oversaw the temple. The scribes, the scribes were the lawyers and the jurists of their day. They were experts in the Jewish law. They were the teachers and the elders. These are other community leaders. So they've got this group together, and they're waiting to ambush Jesus. And you wonder, why are they doing this? What are they thinking? You know, did they know this is the Son of God, and they're just out to get him? We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But they're threatened. Their wealth is threatened. 
their reputation is threatened because the people are liking Jesus more than they like them. There's the status quo. They're worried that Jesus may stir up some trouble to where the Romans will come in and suppress them more. So they're more interested in their wealth, their status quo, their reputation, and all of these things than in truly looking and seeing, is this God's son? Is this God's son? So they're waiting to ambush him. Here comes Jesus and the disciples. And remember, there's a huge crowd of the common people around there that have come to the temple to worship. Verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, of course, we know they're trying to trick him. What they want him to do is to say something that they can accuse him of blasphemy, that the people's opinion can come to their side so they can they can get rid of him. But what's the answer to this question? You know, what if Jesus was to answer, well, by my own authority, I am the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega. Well, right then, they would accuse him of blasphemy and probably pick up stones and kill him on the spot. He's got a couple more days. He has to get on the cross. Or he could say, by my Father in heaven, my Heavenly Father's authority. And, and that's true as well. But then when he says that, that equates him with God, and the same thing would happen. So they're trying to trick him to get him to say something like that so that they can, they can get him. But you really can't trick Jesus, right? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Now remember John the Baptist, when he first started in the wilderness baptizing people, that the priest and uh, some of the priests and Levites went out to check and see what he was doing. Could have been some of the same people. We don't have their names. But remember they came to John and they said, why are you baptizing people? What are you doing? He said, are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He was saying that he was coming to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. John, that's what John told them. And he also went ahead and told them, he called them snakes and vipers. You know, he rebuked them, told them they needed to repent. And these guys had rejected John's message from the start. So by drawing them back to John, you know, it's like the beginning. John says, here comes the Messiah all the way to here he is, near to being crucified, and they have rejected so what are they going to answer? If they answer the truth and they said, no, the baptism of John was of man, meaning it was just John's own idea, it wasn't of God, that, that's the true answer, right? That's how they really feel. But verse 31, they reasoned among themselves saying, so they said, well, come, let's huddle up. What are we going to say? If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So he's got him trapped. Right? If he says it's from, from God, then why didn't you believe? From men, then you've got this whole crowd of people, of common people, who liked John's method, message, who believed he was a prophet. So they're stuck. 33, so they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So you can see the disciples were probably sitting there sweating a little bit, right? Jesus says that, they're doing some high fives. And, and then the scribes and the, the Pharisees there, they're going like, oh, you know, they, they're, you know, this didn't satisfy them. 
of course. And the common people are probably saying, whoa, cool answer. So you've got all these different people listening. Now you think about this group of priests and all, and who were among them. Uh, and, and did they know? We'll look at a parable in a minute that seems to say that they, some of them surely knew. But you have Nicodemus likely to be there. Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees. He came to Jesus. We read about it in John 3. And he said, we know that you are, uh, you are our teacher come from God. And then we have that beautiful passage of, John, of, of Jesus talking to Nicodemus about being born again. And for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So Nicodemus could be in there. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told he was a secret disciple. Is he in the crowd? The crowd of the, the leaders. And we know that Joseph and Nicodemus, both uh, after the crucifixion, they're the ones that took Jesus from the cross and put him in Joseph's tomb. Uh, Saul of Tarsus could be there. But what I think is really encouraging is that if we jump ahead and look in the book of Acts, chapter 6, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the day of Pentecost, when thousands of people are getting saved and coming to Jesus, that we see that there was a great number of the priests who were obedient to the faith. So God's word, even though these guys are going to ultimately vote and press to kill Jesus, that the God's word, Jesus, is working in their hearts. So, that, that's the group that's there. Now, chapter 12, Jesus tells them a parable. And he is really giving them a very strong message here. Now, we have to remember that Jesus didn't stop talking and say chapter 12 and then start again. We have it. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then he began to speak to them in parables. So I'm going to, to read this through. And then we'll come back and, and look at it. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. This would have been common in that time to a wealthy person who would purchase a vineyard or perhaps some other farm or something and then he would lease it out to tenant farmers. And they took care of it, they raised it, and the time of the grapes, the wine, the owner of the property would get two-thirds, and the, the farmers, the tenants, would get one-third. This was a common thing to happen then. So he sent, um, he sent his servant to get that, to get the wine and the grapes and, and the fruit of the harvest. Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and they killed him and many others, beating some and killing some. Now, I don't think any human wealthy man would keep sending people. He would, you know, already gone there with the, uh, with the authorities. But we'll see this as a parallel of God sending the prophets, sending the people, and then, of course, his own son. Verse 6, Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. Through this, we see the great love that God had for the people of Israel. 
that throughout the centuries he continued to send people to warn them, to give them the message, and finally he sends his only son. But these vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now they're not going away happy. They're going away to plot some more. But it says they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Well, how did they know that? Well, they knew that because in other places in Scripture, God takes a vineyard and uses it symbolically for the nation of Israel. And if you had, um, had your bulletin stuck there in Isaiah 5, let's go and look at that. Isaiah prophesied somewhere around 740 B.C. to about 680 B.C. And this, we think this was early in that ministry. So Isaiah 5, chapter 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. And just look right over to verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So letting you know that he's talking definitely about Israel. Verse 2. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So you think about how this parallels the history of the nation of Israel, where God made this nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they ended up in Egypt for those uh, hundreds of years. And then God brought them back, gave them his word, his written word through Moses. And then brings them into Canaan, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, sets up the, the, the worship with the tabernacle and how he has set them up to be a, a light to the world, but yet they continually turn against him. So he sets it up. He's expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Well, I'm thinking, well, wild grapes, maybe they aren't so bad. Um, but I looked up in like the Hebrew dictionary what this word is. It's not really grapes at all. It can be translated wild grape, but it can also be used for anything that's stinking or worthless. A stinking or worthless thing or a stink berry. Now, I'm not sure what that is. I know what a stink bug is, but this is a stink berry. So it expected it to bring forth grapes, but it had brought forth wild grapes. So what God had hoped this nation to do, it did not do. Instead of being the light to the world, it was, it was just as bad and fell into as great a sin as the surrounding nations. Verse 3. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge me, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? God is saying, what more could I have done? 
What, what did I leave undone? And you know, God could probably say that to, to some of us. If you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, and you've been hearing about it and knowing about it for a t- while now, and God has brought you here to hear the message other people have told you, you know what he might say to you, what more could I have done? We'll talk more about that, but don't wait. Today could be the day of your salvation. Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth stink berries? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. God is withdrawing his protection from the nation. And sometimes I wonder if that's not happening to our nation. Because of our nation's sin and our individual sin, is God withdrawing that protection? Verse 6. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I also will command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. And we know what happened. This is around 700 B.C., a little over 100 years later. God continued to send more prophets to warn them. Jeremiah, for example. And the nation continued to go further and further against God, further and further into sin, further and further into idolatry. And so God allowed the Babylonians under, under King Nebuchadnezzar to come in and destroy Israel, to destroy the temple, to destroy Jerusalem. So the temple was completely destroyed. Thousands were killed. Many were led away captive. Many were scattered throughout the world. And, and that was a fulfillment of what Isaiah was saying. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry of help. So the justice and righteousness, the good grapes that he was expecting, instead, these people were oppressing other people, and these other people were crying out to help, crying out to God for help. So let's go back over uh, to Mark 11 now. So this is how we can see that these leaders understood that he was talking about them. And they are the vine dressers. They are the ones. They are the leaders that are entrusted. They are the ones that are responsible for this nation. But instead instead of teaching the people the truth, instead of exampling, a godly person to them. They have led the people away. I was in the wrong place. Here we go. And we see with the the different prophets or the, the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, even John the Baptist, that God sent to warn them, to bring them back to him. That's represented by these people in this parable that this guy went and they killed him. This guy went and they beat him up. So it's a very very precise parable here. Verse 7. But those wine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. This is interesting where these people in this parable knew that this was the heir coming. Do these leaders of the Jews know that Jesus is the Messiah and they're doing it willingly? I think probably some of them did. 
I think probably some of them did. What did they love their wealth more? Or they loved their position? Verse 8, they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. This is prophetic. Jesus knows he is going to be killed. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dresses and give the vineyard to others. So once again, prophetic. We know that after Jesus' death and resurrection, the day of Pentecost, they had another chance with the church being born and the message going out of the gospel going out in, in Jerusalem. And many Jews did come to faith then, but not, not, not that many, not, not enough. So then they were, they were persecuted and basically the church was driven from Jerusalem. So in 66 AD, the Jewish nation decided they were going to rebel against Rome. And in 70 AD, Rome sent General Titus with the Roman legions and destroyed Jerusalem again. Thousands were killed, scattered throughout the world. The temple was destroyed again. And, and that was the situation for, for a couple thousand years, that the Jews were, were, were out of Israel. And the temple was destroyed. And since that time in 70 AD, the Jews have not had the sacrifices, have not been able to offer the sacrifices on the altar that they were told to do in, uh, in the laws of Moses. Of course, we know that there's no longer any reason for that because Jesus, our sacrifice, once and for all is the sacrifice that we need. We don't have to offer daily sacrifices. <clears throat> but who got the vineyard? God said, I'm going to give it to others, right? Well, we've got it. The church has it. God had took his focus off of Israel <clears throat> and it's on the church for 2,000 years. Sometimes we've done a good job, sometimes we've done a bad job. But it's our responsibility now to bring this light, this gospel, this message to the world. Verse 10, have you not even read the scripture? Jesus is talking to the priests and scribes. They memorized these scriptures. They knew these scriptures. He, he's really in their face. It's like, suppose I was in the court for, um, I don't know, whatever it was, stealing a car or something, and, and the judge is talking to me. I said, well, wait a minute, judge. Do you really know the law? That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. Have, have you not read this? And he quotes to him out of Psalm 118. He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. <clears throat> psalm 118 is a messianic, prophet, uh, messianic psalm. There's lots of prophecy there. Last week, uh, when we read about Jesus riding on the donkey into the Jerusalem, the people saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. That was also from Psalm 118. <clears throat> so these guys are seeing this. Verse 12, they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So they did not grab him. They did not arrest him. They did not kill him then. It was not God's time. All these people around are liking what he is saying to them. But we want to talk a little bit about this cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. We see the cornerstone symbology throughout the Bible. We see it in Isaiah, uh, in the, in the, here in the Gospels, of course, and in the book of Acts. After the day of Pentecost, Peter is right up to the high priest and he quotes this same verse, the, stones which, the stone which you rejected 
In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says that Jesus is our cornerstone. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 4, uh, Peter talks about it. And we're going to go take a look at that. So if you turn with me over to 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> now, Peter, if you go all the way to Revelations in the back, and then work your way back to those smaller books, you've got 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and 1st and 2nd Peter. <clears throat> so we're in 1st Peter 2. If you wonder why I found it so quickly, it's because I got these little post-it notes. I love those things, and I knew where I was going. So <clears throat> Peter is talking in his letter, chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him, coming to Jesus as a living stone. Jesus is a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, the parallel here is, God is building his kingdom here as a house of living stones. Jesus, the living stone, is the cornerstone. And we as living stones are part of that building. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. He's quoting Isaiah 28. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. I have that word circled. To me, Jesus is precious. To you who believe, he is precious. You know, you can, I, uh, I, I talk to a lot of people, share with a lot of people the gospel, and, and I'll often say, well, tell me about your relationship with God, or, or who is Jesus to you? And if they say something like, he is precious, he is my Savior, you know, then you think, okay, it sounds like this person knows Jesus. But so often I hear, well, I, I was baptized and I went to church and you hear this very religious kind of answer. But to us who believe, he is precious. He is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Once again, Psalm 118. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So let's think about this cornerstone and us. If, if you have not really given your heart and your life and surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, you could very well be like these priests who knew it was the Son and killed him, and rejected the cornerstone. So if you're, if you're new and haven't heard the gospel, this is it, that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone. He is the foundation of our life. We need to repent of our sins and put our trust in him and give our hearts to him. <clears throat> if you've been coming here for weeks or weeks or years and years and years and have understand the gospel and haven't responded to it, that, that could be a scary thing. Don't, you know, a lack of, that ends up being a rejection. Even if you're sitting here hearing it, it ends up being a rejection. We do not know the day that we step out of this earth. We do not know the day we die. 
And I hope if you've been putting this off and putting this off, to put a little bit of fear of God in you. You know, drunk drivers cross the center line all the time. And you could be driving home today. And then you'd be standing for God and hear him say, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're not promised second and third and fourth chances. Now, we're not going to do fire and brimstone here, but it's good to hear that sometimes. It's good to remember. Now, for us who have chosen God, who, have, who do believe, to whom Jesus is precious to us, is he our cornerstone? You know, the cornerstone of the building was the large block in the foundation that every other block lined up with. If it was wrong or off, then everything gets messed up. It was the cornerstone. If you, if you didn't follow the cornerstone, you didn't have a good building. So is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Are you lining up your life with what you do on a daily basis with him? Or is something else your cornerstone? Like these Jewish leaders, their wealth, that was more important. Their reputation, their jobs, their pride. So what is your cornerstone? Is it social media? Is it sports? What is your life focused around? What is the thing that you're living for? What is the thing that you line up with on a daily basis? I'm going to go to one more passage, and then we'll finish. So if you're, we're in Mark, we're going to go back a book to Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a passage you're all very familiar with about building your house on the rock. I'll give you a minute to get there. We're in Matthew 7. Verse 24, and Jesus is speaking. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Not a rock, but the rock. That is the cornerstone. That is Jesus Christ. But how do you get your life lined up with that? Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, are we listening to what we know in the Bible and doing it. Obedience. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. When the storms of this life come, if Jesus Christ is your rock, your foundation, you will weather that storm. Your house will not fall. Sometimes I think, I feel like some shingles get blown off but the house stays firm. 26, but everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house and it fell and great was its fall. And it's not just a fall in this life, it's an eternal fall. Nick and guys, you, could, you can come on up. <clears throat> so applying this to our lives, let's take a check and see, are we lined up with that cornerstone? Is that the focus of our lives? Is, is that what we're doing? If you have not made Jesus that foundation, then please do it. I'll be up here in the front. The prayer room would be open if you'd like prayer for anything. And let's just bow our heads and close in prayer. Lord, we're so gracious for your word and for the light 
that it gives us. And we pray, Lord, that we would not be bad vine dressers, Lord, but we would we would be walk worthy of you and pleasing you in everything, Lord. Show us if we're off somewhere and how we need to line our lives up, Lord. We need your help so much. We want to glorify you. We want to love you. We want to live for you. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.